many memories, Danny. So many memories. You, you look a little bit like a cold, like a cold leader. <laughs> That's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> Such a nerd. Hey everyone, welcome to Bottom of the Bottle. My name is Manny Gonzalez. Um, this is the show where we, we talk about uh, wine, uh, the world of wine. We dive into a, two bottles at a time. I am the international uh, wine and sake specialist for Horizon Beverage. I'm Adam Cataldo, and I'm here masquerading as someone who knows what he's talking about. <laughs> there you have it. Um, I do that myself many, many times. Uh, you can ask, ask my, my family about that. Hey, Adam, last week we were talking uh, about Burgundy. We talked about, you know, the history of the region. We talked about the monks. You talked about the monks traversing, gallivanting, frolicking through the, uh, through the, the fields and, and through the slopes of Burgundy. Uh, where should we frolic today? I think we should frolic in one of my favorite places to frolic, which is church. It's it's frowned upon in that establishment usually, but it's it's a lovely place to frolic. I mean, that's where I am right now. If you're watching on the video, I'm I'm, I'm surrounded by the, the the glory of the church. It's gorgeous. But no, really, the the church is directly tied, as we talked last week, to to the different wine regions in France, and no more so than in the Southern Rhone, in you know around the village of Avignon. Um, in, in the area of Chateauneuf-du-Pape. So I think we should go to the Southern Rome this week. Awesome. Awesome. So before we kind of dive too deeply into, into the history, which I, I know you will, uh, let's talk a little bit about what we are drinking today. So today I have the Chateau Le Neuf. This is the Cassagne, which is a single estate wine from the Cotteron Village. What are you drinking today, Adam? I have the Andre Brunel, Chateauneuf de Pop, because last week you got to drink the good stuff, and I'm jealous, so I up my game. Okay, so you mentioned the history lesson. I think we need to have one. I don't know if you or the seven people listening are prepared for it, but I'm about to geek out if that's okay. I'm sure, I'm sure there's a couple dorky people that are, that, are, that are willing to listen to you. And when in doubt, my mom will listen. With a fedora. How can you not listen to someone with a fedora? Right? I mean, it just it brings a level of, of je ne sais quoi to my presentation. Never had me do that again. My French is terrible. Okay. So last week, we talked about how the church and the monarchy of France were kind of fighting all the time. And this is, this is true. The papacy was fighting with all the monarchs of Europe throughout the Middle Ages. And we also talked about how the history of wine really much mimics the history of, of France. And it's really evident in, in Chateauneuf. So we're going to start in, in the late 13th century when Philip becomes, Philip the, the Fourth becomes king of France. Uh, that's in the 1280s. In the 1290s, Boniface VIII becomes Pope. This is really important because these two guys have radically different views of what they should each be doing. Philip is the first monarch in France to kind of create a nation state, a nation nation state. He has the idea of I'm in charge. I'm going to rule all the country. Uh, the nobles would come, you know, come to me. It's not these little fiefdoms that report to me. I'm the guy in charge. He also believes the Pope. Um, should be helping him 
exert his influence because the Pope's God's mouthpiece on earth, but Philip's king because God wants him to be king. So they should be working in tandem to enhance Philip's, you know, authority throughout throughout France. Total side note, Philip is known for being extremely gorgeous. His name is Philip the Fair, total dreamboat by, you know, 13th century standards. Uh, Boniface is not. He was the, he was the, the original, uh, the original pinup boy. Absolutely. Uh, but Boniface totally disagrees with kind of Philip's stance on his role in France. Boniface being the Pope, being God's mouthpiece on earth, believes that everyone should be subject to him. Uh, the monarchs kind of not rule at his behest, but if he he can boss the monarchs around, Philip disagrees with this. Uh, this comes to a head in 1296. Philip is broke; he's been fighting a bunch of wars. He needs money. Uh, easiest way to get money in France is to tax, and the people with the most money in France are the clergy. So he taxes the clergy in 1296. Doesn't go over well with Boniface. So Boniface releases two papal bulls. The first is called the Escultafili. This is essentially a reprimand to Philip. What are you doing? You can't tax the clergy. Don't you know who I am? Do you, do you know what Escultafili actually translates to? I do not. No, it literally translates to, I'm going to say it like this because I think it has more impact. It translates to, listen, son. <laughs> That's awesome. I did not know that. It translates that. I, that. That's what that was. That's exactly what that was. Uh, Philip ignores it because that's what Philip does. He doesn't think he has to listen to the Pope. Uh, so there's another papal bull that comes out lately. And guys, so a papal bull is basically an, an official announcement coming from the Pope. The, the next one is called the Unum Sanctum, which is in response to Philip, but it's to all the monarchs of Europe, too, a friendly reminder that the Pope is supreme because he is God's mouthpiece on earth. You know, they have to kind of listen to what he, he says. Um, Philip didn't take the first one well, so he's not going to take this one well either, obviously. And he calls a meeting in the middle of Paris and decides to burn the papal bulls for the entire world to see as a I don't have to listen to you moment. Boniface being Pope does not take kindly to this and excommunicates Philip. So Philip, this isn't... Excommunication is tricky. We think of it as this awful thing, and it is in many ways. Um, it's not good for Philip because the people of France are still Catholic. The Reformation is not going on yet. There, there's still one church. So if the regular people of France do not believe that Philip has the grace of God on his side, they might start listening to the clergy instead of him. It's very important to have the people listen. Um, you know, they... they the direct interaction between the king and the peasants doesn't happen, but you don't want them to get ideas of rebellion. So excommunication is bad. So Philip responds in a very Philip fashion. He hires a small uh, army and sends them to Italy to basically kidnap the Pope, <laughs> which they do. Uh, they, they attack him in his home, hold him for three days, they beat him, they torture him. Uh, you know, he's not a young man, he's in his 70s. They really just, really just do some damage to, to Boniface in his home. So I heard one story about that, um, that there's, there's a term called the, uh, I think it's the Gauntlet of Anagi, uh, which was the town that Boniface was from. That they basically hit him in the face with a with a with a steel glove. That's harsh. That's, yeah, I hundred percent. Look, Philip is not happy with this, right? 
But yeah, that, 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 that's where he was attacked. So 100%, that's exactly where that term comes from, is the attacking of Boniface. Um, historically, we cannot say that Philip had Boniface killed, but Boniface never really recovers. And a month later, on, on October 11th of, of 1303, uh, Boniface dies of a high fever. So, again, he was old. He was beaten for three days. There's a correlation there, but history stops at saying Philip's directly responsible. <laughs> Benedict XI becomes Pope next, pretty much right away. This is interesting because Benedict was with Boniface when Boniface was attacked. Benedict immediately rescinds the excommunication of Philip, but then proceeds to excommunicate the men that were involved in the kidnapping and beating of the Pope, including one of Philip's closest advisors, uh, his last name Donagare, just decides, you know what, yeah, I, I, I'm going to let Philip back in, but the rest of you screw you. Ten months later, a seemingly healthy Benedict just doesn't wake up one morning. So, I don't know. There's theories he was poisoned, but again, there's no direct, there's no evidence one way or the other. He poisoned the Pope? That's a, that's a Putin move. Yeah, see, you, you think that, if you go back and you look, uh, Popes were getting knocked off all the time, you know, it, back, it, back then. Like, it's, it's, it was such a funky, you would think they wouldn't because of their position, but it happened. It, 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 it was becoming secular, so the the Pope, in many ways, was a was a kingship, and your people are always vying for power and what family wants to be Pope and so on. So the, the, this stuff happened. Either way, we have a new Pope, Clement V. It takes about a year to elect him, but it's interesting. Clement gets elected while he's in France, so he's not in Italy. He's in France, and Philip is doing all this kind of crazy stuff while Clement's there. So Clement decides, you know, I have to stay in France because Philip is driving me absolutely insane and I have to make sure this doesn't go off the rails. Of course, it still goes off the rails, even though Clement immediately retracts the Esculptophilia in the Unum Sanctum, letting Philip do what he wants. And even though at Philip's behest, Clement puts up a tribunal to essentially posthumously try Boniface for heresy because Philip just can't stop being a jerk. I said he was handsome. I didn't say he was nice. So the, uh, the, fair, the fair wasn't because he was a nice guy then. Exactly. It was his complexion. So on top of all that, Philip's like, you know what? I'm still broke. So in 1309, excuse me, 1307, he arrests all the Knights Templar in France, which sounds like, why would, why would you arrest the Knights Templar? Well, the Knights Templar technically are not French citizens. They are citizens of, of the papacy. So they kind of have this movement to, to go in and out of all the countries of Europe. And also, at this point, they're bankers to the Pope. Uh, the Italian bankers have not become the, the Pope's bank yet. Everything with the Medici's and so on hasn't happened in for like another hundred years. So if you seize the, the Templars and all their assets, you're taking a lot of money and a lot of land because they're bankers to the Pope at this point. So he takes them and he does this without asking Clement. But Clement goes along with it so he does not seem weak in front of Philip. Oh yeah, it was my idea the whole time. I, I, I totally signed off on this. At this point, 
Philip is such a handful. Clement says, you know what? I, I, I can't leave. This guy's going to drive me insane. So in 1309, he moves the papacy from Rome to the Rhone to Avignon, where he decides this is the new spot where the where I will the, the, the Pope will sit. Uh, the Avignon papacy goes from 1309 to 1376. Uh, it's called the Babylonian exile, depending on you know your your point of view. Um, <clears throat> But he, you know, he moves. Side note, uh, 1311, Clement just disbands the Knights Templar because it just wasn't worth it. There's no crusades going on right now, and the, and the Templar have kind of outlived their usefulness as far as the order goes. So Clement just says, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Screw this. It's not worth it. That reminds me of uh, the scene in Star Wars whenever Palpatine uh, dissolved the Imperial Senate. <laughs> uh, I, it's, I mean, it, I believe it's the exact inspiration for that scene. You know, I'm pretty sure George Lucas has said that somewhere. Because this was um, also a long time ago, and some might say in a galaxy, you know, far away. Absolutely. So why this is important, why we, we go through all this is the, I don't know if we'd be where we are today with Rome wines, you know, if, if the papacy hadn't moved. And we still could have gotten to this point, right? Because of all sorts of reasons that we'll get into soon. But when the papacy did move there, the wine around that territory became a sacrament and it had to get better because now we're, we're making the wine for, for God and not just for the, the average people around. But we're not done yet. We have one more thing to talk about here. Uh, when Clement dies, John the 22nd becomes Pope. He falls in love with a town 11 miles north of Avignon and decides to build a castle there because, you know, popes can build castles. <laughs> and uh, and, and moves his residence there. And that little town, in, we now know as Chapter of the Pop, which literally translates as Castle of the Pope. So that's kind of the story of how, you know, the, the papacy surrounded itself around Avignon and the Southern Rhone and improved the wine quality. And you know, Chapter of the Pop is a really important wine region. And that's how this kind of how the, the, the town was born. Yeah, that's that's awesome. What I what I think is so amazing about about that about this whole story. I mean, it really is kind of like Indiana Jones with the Knights Templar meets dissolving the Imperial Senate with uh, Star Wars as written by Daniel Gerard Brown of um, Da Vinci Code. We just need uh, Tom Hanks to like make a cameo in this. Is, is he not coming on the podcast? Yeah. No, <laughs> What I think is also crazy, there's like a, there's an older story here that, that goes back, you know, two million years before, um, you know, that's uh, basically like the, the, the Rhone itself, you know, really created much of the, the landscape, it created the, the soils of what we have today, but the Rhone is basically at one point a glacier. So two million years ago, it started in Switzerland where Lake Geneva is, it kind of carved out, it created Lake Geneva. Um, and it made it as far as the city of Lyon, which is, you know, south of Burgundy on kind of the central east corner of France. When the Rhone met Lyon, there was another river called the Saone. So we're going to rhyme again. So the Rhone met the Saone by Lyon, decided it wanted to go south as a good glacier would do. I would want to go to the Mediterranean. It went straight south and it carved out the landscapes that we have. So you have um, in the northern part um south of Lyon, it's what we call the Northern Rhone. Uh, you have a lot of granite soils. It's like real steeply terrace. 
um, the Romans planted here 2,000 years ago. You go further south to where Shatan of the Pop is, and it kind of created what's, what's called it's the Rhone Delta and kind of eventually goes out towards Marseille. But it created all of this, this first of all, unique landscape. But the soils here are, they're kind of ridiculous soils, you know. It's so true. It's so true. The, it's a mixture of, in many places, because we have this melting glacier, we have some limestone, we have some gravel, we have some sand, we have some clay, but the one kind of unified thing that we have, they're called galet, that's the fancy French way of, of saying it, I probably mispronounced it, but you're just all gonna have to get over it. Uh, it it's galet soil, and galet basically means that it's a sea of stones, a sea of rocks. There are just rocks everywhere, um, you know, and we, I guess the, the affectionate term for them now, we call them puddle stones, right? Yeah. So, and these things are, um, so if I can just let you know a real geeky science fact. So plants between, all plants between 55 degrees and uh, 95 degrees, that's when they produce photosynthesis. So any lower they can't, any higher they can't. And this is a really hot Mediterranean climate. So um, you have the ocean and the, and the river that helps regulate some temperature, uh, but your daytime temperatures can be really high. And so what these giant stones do, uh, they work almost as a, um, they catch basically the intense sunlight. So they'll catch the heat during the daytime and store it so those plants can still, um, they can still produce, produce photosynthesis. And at nighttime when it gets cool, especially by the harvest when you get close to frost time, it radiates that heat out and um, it basically keeps the vines warmer. So you have this beautiful ripening period which creates a lot of this intensity of of the Rhone itself and like especially if shot up the pop so but there's even nerd. i mean like i'm sorry go ahead you go nerd <laughs> i know uh well you know as someone's we gotta, we gotta keep it even here there's there's only a certain amount of of uh nerddom we're allowed though so we gotta we gotta kind of rate it in um sure. but i mean like the romans knew all this you know the romans knew um you know basically like the uh where to plant certain vines with certain and certain grapes in certain areas and they did this all along the rhone so you know they and the cool thing about the rhone is that it connects all of france and basically if you were to go up the rhone from there you can get to provence and the romans started uh settling in provence and and planting in provence um you go further up, we already established the Rhone meets the Saône by Lyon. Well, the Saône goes up to Burgundy. From there, you get to Champagne. From there, you can get to the Rhine, which takes you to Germany. You can hit some tributaries that take you to the Loire, to the center part of France. Um, there are tributaries called the Tarn, which uh, at some point connects with the Rhone in southern France, and that takes you right up to Bordeaux. So um, they unified the concept of France, or, or at least in terms of one group of people settling in the area. But, you know, I think unknowingly, they connected the entire wine world to uh, French wine production and to its wine laws. So, absolutely. This is going right back to AOCs that we talked about last week. So, if you didn't listen last week, shame on you. Uh, but I'll repeat it for, for all of you that are late to the potty. Uh, AOC translates to appellation or gene controle again pardon my french it's terrible but basically the AOC system 
I, I know and I still can't do it. Um, but the the AOC system is basically the the regulatory framework of, of French wine. And you know, in it does different things in different places. Uh, when we were in Burgundy last week, we were predominantly talking about two grapes, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Now, there are a couple others that are thrown in there, but for the most part, it's, it's, it's Pinot and Chardonnay. Um, and then as we, I talked about the AOC being the pyramid, and as the, you know, as we went further up, the, the place the grapes were coming from got smaller and smaller. But we were always talking about for Red's Pinot and for, for White Chardonnay. Uh, in, in many ways, Burgundy is um, really simple. And then in other ways, it's ludicrously complex because you go, oh, it's just it's just Pinot and Chardonnay. But we, you know, the places get smaller, except that there's tons of different places it can come from, and, and so on. The, the The Rhone's a little different. Um, we're not talking about monovarietal wines. We're, we're we're almost always talking about blends. Um, and you know, it's not just two or three grapes. We have lots of grapes that we're talking about when we get into uh, the Rhone. But the same piece hold about the pyramid, the farther up the pyramid you get, the tighter or the smaller the location the grapes come from um, it, it, it is the case. So at the bottom, we have Cote d'Aron, which is the, you know, the, the smallest, uh, the, the largest in, in, in geography as far as where the grapes can come from and the loosest kind of rules for, for making wine. So um, yeah, that brings us to basic, you know, the basic Cotaron, which uh, is what you would read on the label. There are 171 villages in the Cotaron, um, and if you combine all these villages together with your with your grapes, uh, you are going to you're just going to call it Cotaron. There are 23 grapes you can use. Um, it's well over 50 or 60 percent production of the entire region, mostly um, in the area surrounding Chateau de Pop, because it's such a warm climate. And typically, I find is one of the best values, um, one of the best value wines that you can get in the region. The next step up from Cote d'Aron is Cote d'Aron Village. So rather than talk about all the spots Manny just mentioned, uh, we have less places the, the wine can come from, and we have some more restrictions on how the wine is made and what grapes you can use and, and so on. Exactly. So there are 95 villages. Um, so this would be an example of how you would read on the label if you're able, if you're watching the video, it says Cote de Rhone Village, kind of at the bottom. There are 95 villages that you kind of put together. You have to be, now you have to be a blend. You have to be at least 50% Grenache as your, as your main varietal. Um, but good producers like Chateau Le Neuf will, um, so now you can blend these 95 villages, but a good producer is going, and a good grower, are gonna pay so much attention to that village um, and produce the best wine they possibly can, because the hope at the end of the day is that that village can go up the next to the next kind of tier in the pyramid, the third tier up. So they call Cotaron named village, um, and this is where it still says Cotaron, it still says village on it, but you're able to put the name of your village on that label, and it means that you are um, you are producing better fruit than all the tiers below you. And uh, so everything is coming from that specific village. So one example would be, it would say Cotaron village, Plan de Dieu, which is the name of a village. Plan de Dieu translates to uh, God's plan. Once again, tying it down to the papacy. Always, 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 always. Okay, so just quick recap. Pyramid, Cotaron on the bottom, Cotaron village, one tier up. Cotaron village, name village, 
my name Village to just for consistency uh, on the third year. And then we have the cruise of the Rhone coming after that. So we talked about Burgundy last week. We kind of touched on this uh, with Premier Crew and Grand Crew. In Burgundy, these are vineyards when we're talking about cruise. There's very specific sites, single vineyards with a, that have shown exceptional quality that get uh, you know, denoted as such. In the Rome, we're not talking about single um, single vineyards. We're talking about villages when we talk about crews. Jugendas, uh, Vakiras, for example. Um, again, the restrictions are tighter. Uh, what you can do, the grapes you can use, what, the quality goes up, but the rules get uh, more strict. The most famous of these in the Southern Rome is what I'm drinking, the Chateauneuf de Pop. That's why we kind of gave you that origin story before, because the entire region kind of grew out from around Chateauneuf. So I just realized that we're talking all about this history. We're talking about the Pope, the monarchy, the Rhone itself, the soils, the climate. Um, we haven't actually talked about wine yet. It sounds like us. We should we should probably talk a little bit about wine. Um, you know, so for the most part, you know, our grapes in the Southern Rhone are going to be based. Uh, they're predominantly blends. If you see basic Cote Rhone, it can be 100% Syrah, but it's it's or 100% Grenache, but it's pretty rare. Um, but our main two varietals that we really focus in on are Grenache and Syrah. So just really quick to denote, um, most of what we've been talking about so far has been the Southern Rhone, which is gonna be Grenache dependent. Syrah really is a Northern Rhone, um, you know, specialty, which deserves its own kind of talk. And we, we don't want to shortchange the Northern Rome, but we kind of have. So just like last week, we didn't mention Beaujolais when talking about Burgundy and, you know, we're supposed to be experts. We don't mention it at all. <laughs> uh, so we don't want, we don't want to forget the entire Northern Rome when we do this one. So we know it's there, but we're kind of talking Southern Rome just because it's a little easier to break them in half. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll tap into that. We'll tap into that later. So um, with my wine, Chateau Le Neuf, um, this is a single estate wine, actually called the Cassagne, and it is our single vineyard wine, um, but just under this basic Cotheron Village um, designation. So it is coming from one specific place, but they're a super old house. So we're talking about history in the Rhone. They're they're pretty pretty historic. They date back to 1560. Um, so they're you know almost 500 years old. Um, fun side note: they were the they also produced Chateau of the Pop that Adam is drinking, uh, or from the same village Adam is drinking. They were the first people to import into the United States Chateau of the Pop. And probably uh, we're here in Massachusetts. I know some of you are all over the country, all over the world, hopefully. But for those of you in Massachusetts, uh, this was the most likely the first Chateau of the Pop brought in to the ports of Boston Harbor. That was uh, a, a valiant attempt at an accent that you don't have, Nick. I've been here for 21 years, so I'm, I'm, I'm getting you know, there. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, Haba is hard to roll off the tongue, but <laughs> it, it was close. You know, um, what's great about the wine, I mean, it's just, it's fruit forward, it's super easy to drink, but there's a lot of complexity to it. Um, to me, this is a great, great barbecue wine, like super fun, super easy. So I think mine is too. So I have, I'll show you guys again, Andre Brunel, Chateau of the Pop, and... Brunel is not as old as Lynn Earth, but it still has some history. We're going back to the 17th century now, so we're in the 1600s. And still family-owned and operated, been making wine in this area for a long time, which is really important to talk about with, with you know, 
the old world in general. So when we say old world, uh, we're talking about Europe. When we say new world, we're talking pretty much about everything else. Um, the old world's been making wine for centuries. You know, they know what they're doing. They know what works. They know they have, they have an identity. That's kind of what the the AOC system is. It's the it's the identity of that place. They're trying to create a sense of place. So I have a Chateauneuf uh, from Andre Brunel that is very much a a symbol of that family and how they view the area and, and themselves and their identity. Uh, Chateauneuf has an identity too, which is what the AOC system tries to do. Andre Brunel Chateauneuf. What is like other Chateauneufs is we are more red fruit as opposed to black fruits. Um, you know, where 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 cherries, where where strawberries. You know, we're, we're bright red fruit tones. We have structure, we have tannin and acidity, but it's not overwhelming. So you can drink this by itself or you can have it with food. Yeah, it's, a, it's a very versatile wine. Um, but in, in general, I think those, the, those red fruit tones are what come through. I don't like telling people what you can taste, but I, I think red fruit's generic enough where it, it, you know, it, it kind of gets the point across. And it's delicious, by the way. So what I think is really cool, you know, like always keeping with this this theme, you know, within these regions and the symbolism is really important in, in winemaking. Um, I think nowhere more so than in Europe, maybe France and, and Italy, um, than anywhere else in the world. And even, you know, you have Chateau of the Pop, you Chateau of the Pope um, from this region that, that Pope John had kind of settled for Sacramento wine. We also have, in terms of our varietals, they're really specific. We have 13 grapes within this region to represent the 12 apostles in Christ, which is, you know, in Latin cultures, 13 is not unlucky. It's Nordic cultures where 13 is unlucky because they have a, a similar story of the Last Supper that I won't get into, but you can research it. It's about this god named Boulder and this other god named Loki. Um, and it basically follows the same story of the Last Supper. And that's why in Nordic cultures, 13 is unlucky, but here it's a super lucky number and I think makes a super, super amazing wine, you know. And, you know, kind of going back to what Adam said, talking about the structure, just how fun these wines are. If you are someone that only drinks New World wines, you only drink wines from Napa or even like Russian River Pinot, Burgundy may not make 100% sense. Um, you know, it's, you're dealing with wines that are more fruit forward versus wines that are higher in acid. Um, this is something that a new world wine drinker can easily get behind and the old world wine drinker loves. hundred percent. I, I want to even go one step further than that. If you're someone who only likes white wine per se, and the white wine that you like is your oaky, buttery California shot, this might be a good transition wine for you. Uh, because the the weight is going to be similar, uh, you still have that kind of oak influence, some of those oak tones that you get from the, you know, from, from the from the New World Chardonnay. But you're not going to get the overwhelming necessarily tannic structure that you will of a Bordeaux or maybe you know going outside of France like a Tuscan red. So you have that softness on the palate, but you have the similar weight and, and you have those fruit tones and those oak tones that you like out of that. New World Chardonnay. So it, it's, it might be in many situations a good transition from, hey, I don't like red wine. I only like California Chardonnay. Well, maybe you do like red wine. You just haven't tried a red wine. 
Absolutely. And they also make some stellar, stellar rosés from a village not far from Chapinov called Tabel. So are you saying we're going to talk rosé? I think we got to talk rosé. I think rosé is I love rosé. Rosé is kind of my thing. <laughs> that, I mean, we're in that time of year, you know, but maybe we can. So, I mean, there are different styles of rosé. So instead of talking about like Provence, which everyone knows, or Tival, which is, you know, relatively not obscure, but I mean, it's, it's not as well known, but makes some great wines. Maybe we can talk about like rosé styles instead of um, just pinpointing one historic area. Yeah. We can kind so of eat production. We have a seven hour podcast. Next time. Yeah, let's do it. Seven hours with just expounding upon rosé. <laughs> and instead of two bottles, we're going to do like 13 bottles. And well, someone's different, going to have different areas, regions. I mean, listen, we can talk Tuscan rosé versus Provence versus Duval versus Spanish versus California. You know, Susanna Balbo, which is Malbec and Pinot Noir. I mean, those are some cool, cool, cool wines. We're going to need to regroup and think about this. <laughs> dangerous awesome well i think i think this is a good point to to wrap it up i mean like we got some great great um you know stories going on here you know you can there is such amazing history in the rhone it's not just the nine ten dollar bottle of easy drinking wine or that really beautiful once a week once every couple of weeks shut enough you know we have all these other villages that we can really dive into at some point um and then because i really want to get into rosé and i know you do too Maybe um, we can do a couple quick bonus um, hits on the Chateau the Pop makes a white. Uh, we can talk a little bit about Northern Rhone, you know, and then we can get ourselves ready for Rosé because it is the time of year. Yeah, yeah we, we almost went the entire podcast without mentioning white Rhone wine. So I know. Again, when we say we're experts, take that with a grain of salt because... <laughs> For experts at drinking it. So um, make sure you check us out on Instagram at uh, bottom of the barrel 750, uh, wherever you like to stream your podcast. We'll start putting up a video content of these um, as soon as possible. Uh, once we can edit out um, any scratches on my face, um, you know, or if I can get a, a better backdrop like Adam, uh, who is, you know, in the Rhone right now, going back to your Alter Boy days. Um, but until next time, should I kick us out with some music? Let's do it. Awesome. Cheers, everyone. We'll see you soon. It's a really pretty melody. It is. I just realized. Can I name all 14 Captain of Grapes? Can you? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll spot you for an Isaram over. How's that sound? The three easy All right, ones. so I have three. So I have ten. All right. Sanso. Um. Let's see, Kunwa. I'm trying. I'm see if I can go alphabetical order. Oh, no, if I'm going alphabetical order, Berberlang, Sanso, Kunwa, Clarit. Uh, screw alphabetical order. Mascardan, Picpo, Territ Noir, uh, Roussan, Vacares, and come on, come on, come on! I'm missing one. I'm missing one. I'm missing one. Gonna cheat. Uh, they say Picardan, Mascardan. I, I cheated, but those are those are the thirteen grapes. <laughs> Where's I didn't even get into the weird hybrids like Grenache Gris, Grenache Noir, Grenache Blanc. But there, I think there's like eighteen. Just to make it, just to make it easy. No one's gonna listen to us anyways.
<laughs> Cheers, everyone. We'll see you soon. Cheers, guys.